Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. This is episode 213. I'm still a little bit shocked that we've done more than 200 episodes of the show. All I can say is thank you very much for sticking with us and continuing to listen and and to watch and giving us your feedback on the episodes on Twitter and so forth. We really, really appreciate it. Now, uh, I'm sad to say Dr. Kevin Fulta is not joining us. He has a very busy schedule as a college professor sometimes, so he's off giving a lecture today. So it's just going to be you and me diving into the three usual stories that we break down. So let's get into these. First up, how environmental social governance screens can be manipulated to promote misleading science and damage sustainability efforts. Next up, the top 10 anti-biotech propagandizers. Who are the snake oil peddlers undermining science in agriculture and medicine? And finally, a fool's errand. Here's why the FDA's new healthy food labels won't move the needle on chronic disease. All intriguing stuff as usual, but let's start with this first story. This is by Dr. David Zarek, whose work we've covered before on the show, and this was published in Genetic Literacy Project on March 23rd. Now, in order to understand the argument that uh, Dr. Zarek is making here, we need to define some terms. And in particular, we need to talk about what ESG is. And many of you are probably familiar with this, but if you're not familiar, ESG is, is basically a framework that investors can use to screen the companies that they're going to invest in based on these these three standards that are becoming increasingly popular, right? So social, of course, would be very social issues. Uh, Environment, which we're concerned about here is, are are these companies operating in a sustainable fashion? And then governance, more or less is transparency. You know, is it clear how these companies are operating? Are they doing things behind closed doors that they don't want people to see and so forth? now, I think in general, no one has an objection to any of these, right? I certainly don't have a problem with environmental sustainability. It's a good thing, of course. Um, same thing with, with social responsibility and transparency. I think everybody likes these for the most part. I think the issue comes in, though, is when you start talking about definitions. How exactly are you defining sustainability, for example? And this is this is where Zarek's argument comes in. So his thesis here is that the investment firms, and these are generally big investment firms that are setting these ESG metrics, <clears throat> they are divorced from agriculture. They don't know what it, what like what food production actually entails. So they're setting these metrics based on standards that may or may not make sense down on the farm. And the result of this ultimately is lower production which means higher food prices. Um, It also means uh, less sustainable farming practices. And then to compensate for the decrease in production, it's going to actually result in less transparency. So ironically, you're going to get exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to with these metrics. And ultimately, it's also these really big food companies and these investors can virtue signal that they're all about sustainability and transparency and, and social justice and so forth. So let's get into let's get into some specifics. So basically what's happening here is you have big food producers who are trying to achieve high ESG scores 
so they can show to investors, look, we're really into the environment. We're all about it, you know, so invest in us, give us your money. Um, and that's fine. But what these companies are doing is they're not really changing their operations. They're not changing how they do business. They're just passing on these expectations to the farmers um, that supply the raw ingredients for their products. So for example, you may have farmers now that have to comply with with caps on the amount of fertilizer they can use or the amount of pesticide they can use or how much water they can use. Um, and again, generally, these are good things, right? We want to reduce um, the amount of inputs we're using to produce the food we need. Um, ultimately, we want to produce more while using fewer of these inputs. But the problem is, is these metrics are not set based on what farmers need, you know, what's right for the land that they're growing on or what's right for the crop that they're growing and so forth. These are sort of a one size fits all is the term Zarek uses. These are a one size fits all sort of approach to sustainability. And that doesn't make any sense, right? So it's a bit cynical for these companies to say, Hey, look, we're all about sustainability because we're forcing farmers to uh, grow in a certain way. So that's the first problem, but it gets a little more nefarious and a, and a little more or much more harmful than that. So for example, if you require farmers to use less fertilizer than they need, then you're actually going to get less food production. And again, this is going to result in higher food prices. As we've talked about on previous episodes, uh, when you use fewer inputs like fertilizer or, or pesticide than you really need, you're going to expand the amount of land that you're bringing into agricultural production, which is going to uh, degrade the environment more, right? So I think I think you're starting to see how the argument is set up here, right? So you're getting people who are going to say, "Hey, look, we love the environment. We're so all, we're all about the environment and sustainability." And meanwhile, they're actually forcing people, forcing farmers, into practices that are worse for the environment. So here's how Zarek puts it, summarizing this, this argument we're laying out. He says, the implication here is that farmers who require fewer crop inputs, fertilizer, pesticide, water, uh, genetically engineered seeds, and so forth, will have more value in the ESG investment point race. And then this leads to a question. So as Eric asks, so will farmers now have to make decisions not on the basis of what's best for their crop or soil, but on what will make some corporate investor relations director shine at the next general assembly? And then he goes on, this is another, another helpful quote that I want to get to, because this has to do with, with the production aspect of this. So Zarek says, the reality is that the impossibility to meet endlessly tidying ESG standards will lead to rampant cheating, what I call organish food, or the non-reporting of necessary farming practices. But this don't ask, don't tell approach will conflict with the G in ESG governance that demands transparency and integrity. Okay. So as we, as we alluded to just, just above here, right, basically what's going to happen is farmers are going to pretend to comply with these standards in so many words, but they're going to have to use technologies and they're going to have to engage in practices that technically they're not allowed to um, because you have to produce food. You have to feed people. This is just the reality of the, of the world that we live in. So this is, this is just a mess. You know, ultimately what you get then is you get these ESG standards and they're leading to less sustainable food production, less transparency. This is a, really, it's a total disaster. And so ultimately what we need to do here, I think, and, and I'll bounce this off Kevin when I get back, but what we need to do is we need to trust farmers and trust uh, agricultural scientists, people like Kevin and others that we've talked about on the show. Um, we need to trust these people to work together to make the decisions that are best uh, for agriculture. 
right? Because they have the best incentives. Farmers, I mean, they have the best incentives to make the most use of the, make the most use of their land, to use fewer pesticides, to use less fertilizer, uh, because these inputs are expensive, right? Farmers don't want to spend money. They want to produce as much as they can with as little as they can. So you need to trust these people, in other words, to make these decisions. You don't need big investment firms in Manhattan or some other major city that don't understand food production setting these determinations because the consequences are going to be bad. So again, sustainability is great, but let's define it properly and then let's uh, implement the right standards um, in order to get those results that we want. So we'll leave that there. I encourage you to read this article. Very, very good stuff as always. Zarek is uh, thought-provoking and challenging as a writer, and uh, I really love that. So let's move on. We're going to talk now about the uh, the top 10 anti-biotech propagandizers. This is a great article. This is also originally from the Genetic Literacy Project, and this was published originally in uh, 2021. They republished it on March 31st. Now, all of these names more or less are familiar to you if you are a regular listener of this show or you're a regular GLP reader. These are folks like uh, Andrew Kimbrell, who's a lawyer at the Center for Food Safety, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course, just announcing his bid for for president in the upcoming election, which, oh boy. (laughs) Uh, Joe Mercola, of course, Uh, Mike Adams, Vandana Shiva, all names, Alex Jones, right? All names that you're going to be familiar with. Now, instead of going through all of these, I just want to focus on a handful of them because we could talk for hours about all of these people. But I've interacted with the work of, of several of these people in more detail than others. So I'm going to focus on just two. And then again, go read this article. Go look into these people on your own time. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Joe Mercola. And if you're not familiar, he is, he is uh, an osteopath. He's a trained physician. Um, but for most of his career, he's been an alternative medicine guru. He's been a supplement salesman. And almost everything he says is false or it's a half-truth or there's something more to the story that he's not letting on. Right? He's a critic of vaccines. He's a, cr- a critic of, of modern pesticides like, like glyphosate. He's a critic of genetically engineered crops. Basically, if there's a modern technology in food or medicine, he almost has something, almost certainly has something negative to say about them. And let me give you uh, one example that I'm particularly familiar with. Um, he wrote an article a couple years back, back in 2021. This was published at, uh, what was it? The Epic Times, which is, uh, I don't know how to put it. It's a strange sort of a, a right-wing newspaper. And they they tend to go down, they tend to be down with conspiracy theories and you know, I don't want to say anti-science is the wrong word, but they tend to think um, whatever the mainstream view is on food and agriculture, we're going to take the, the opposite perspective. And and this case that Mercola made um, is a typical example. So he's trying to explain why there was an increase um, or why there's been an increase in autism cases since the 1960s. And of course, he points the finger at glyphosate, which is a weed killer we've talked about plenty on the show. Um, but I think this this argument he makes, this encapsulates so many of the problems with the kind of commentary he offers. And so the first thing he points out is that there has indeed been um, an increase in the number of diagnosed cases of, of autism spectrum disorder in the last several decades. Now, the immediate and probably most obvious explanation for this, <clears throat> excuse me, is that there's been an increase in access to healthcare. There's been an expansion of the definition 
of autism spectrum disorder, uh, the, 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 the symptoms that you, that you attribute to, attribute to the, the condition or that uh, physicians look for when they diagnose this has expanded, particularly since the 1980s. So it's not that there's been a genuine increase in, in ASD cases. It's just been that people or physicians, scientists, and so forth, they're looking more carefully at people that might um, be diagnosed with this. So that's the first point. Now, Mercola is dismissive of this. He says, um, no, this has been an enormous increase. You can't just explain this with an expansion in, in diagnosis. And then he points the finger at environmental uh, exposures that are likely causing autism. Now, there is some speculation in the scientific literature about this, that there probably are environmental causes that are contributing to autism, but we just don't really know what they are yet. And we don't know in to what extent these are causing it, right? The, for the old correlation versus causation thing comes to mind. You know, maybe these things are correlated with autism, but they don't cause it and so forth. Um, maybe there is some particular chemical exposure, um, but we just don't know. And I looked into the studies that, that, that Mercola cited here, and the research here does not mention glyphosate at all. So he, he cites a 2012 study that identified 10 chemicals suspected of causing learning disabilities and ASD being, being one of these. Um, now, the 2012 article, and I'm looking at it here, it's, it's called, the title is A Strategy to Discover, and they're trying to identify environmental causes of autism, uh, but they don't mention uh, any new evidence that would help us understand what causes autism, nor do they even mention glyphosate. So, Mercola goes on and he cites another 2019 study. And this is an, this is a, how do I explain this? It's an epidemiological study where they're looking at um, pesticide use in a particular um, set of counties in California, because there's a lot of agriculture in California. So they're looking at pesticide use in these counties, and then they're looking at cases of autism in the same counties. Um, there's a lot of problems here. For one thing, this is the purpose of the study is not what Mercola wants, right? Like he's looking for some kind of a conspiratorial smoking gun. And these people are just doing research to see if there's a correlation. So he can't answer the question that he wants to answer with this research. Uh, but more importantly, the study itself, they're, they're, they have imprecise measures of, of pesticide exposure. For one thing, they don't actually have exposure data. They're looking at a zip code that somebody lives in, and then they're comparing where that person lives to how much pesticide was used in that, in that county or in that zip code or what have you. And then they're just correlating that with autism cases. So this is not going to tell you um, what you need. And, and even if we want to take the results at face value, which I, I would be skeptical of doing, the point is that this isn't strong evidence. This isn't what Mercola needs. Now, he doesn't explain any of these details to his audience. This is left to, to them to do, or in this case, it's left to, to us here on the podcast to sort of break this down. Um, now, of course, there's no mechanism, right? There's no explanation of how glyphosate exposure is going to cause autism, right? There's the typical speculation from people like Stephanie Seneff, who, who Mercola also cites, you know, uh, glyphosate exposure disrupts uh, your gut microbiome, you know, there's all these different hypotheses, but none of these are supported um, by evidence. And I think what's really striking here is if you look, there was a, a study done by the National Academies of Sciences a couple years ago, and they looked at uh, 
um, autism rates between different countries. And then they looked at how much glyphosate they use. And the rates of autism are not influenced by the amount of glyphosate a country uses. So I think right there, that's enough to dispel Mercola's hypothesis. And, and this is just one example we could talk about vaccines, we could talk about the supplements he sells, but I think this gives you the general idea of the kind of work he does and the kind of speculation he does and why it's not really grounded in evidence um, and why there's no need to, to take him seriously. So share this with your friends. The article that I'm, that I'm talking about that I wrote um, is, uh, has a very nice title. It's called Refuting Crazy Joe Mercola's Glyphosate Autism scare story. And I owe that title, Crazy Joe Mercola, to uh, my colleague, Dr. Josh Bloom at the American Council on Science and Health, who has for many years gone after Mercola using this, this terminology. So check out that article on acsh.org. Uh, but let's move on. Let's talk about uh, Mike Adams, who is the proprietor of a website called Natural News. I've talked about him before. He's, he's very, very out there <laughs> in the claims that he makes about mainstream science and medicine. Um, and what I wanted to talk about here, just, and again, this is just to characterize him and give you an example of the sort of work he does. This is another article that I wrote for ACSH called Monster Energy's Satanic Plot to Promote Sugar Consumption. <laughs> and I'm dead serious here. Um, you can go read the article yourself and find out. But, but the thesis here from Mike, the health ranger, who, and this is his nickname, calls himself the Health Ranger. <laughs> so Mike the Health Ranger um, is advancing the idea that the company Monster, their energy drink, is a satanic ploy to get people to consume sugar and artificial sweeteners, which cause cancer and other serious diseases. <laughs> I don't, Looking back on this, it's sort of funny that we actually have to take this seriously and, and refute it. So let me... <laughs> Let me go through this really quickly. I can't share my screen with you and the program we're using. But here's the this is the op-ed that is, pu is published on Natural News. This is from January 9th, 2022. It's called Monster Energy Drink Delivers Cryptic Satanic, all caps, messages nobody even noticed for the last decade. <laughs> so let me, let me read the quote here. But the basic idea is that the Monster Energy Drink logo um, is actually Hebrew letters that translate to 666, which in the in the New Testament and the Bible is the mark of the beast. And there are some Christians, they're not, I wouldn't say they're the majority necessarily, but there are some Christians that see this as, <laughs> this is gonna be the mark of the antichrist that's gonna come take over the world one day. And so Monster is secretly in league with uh, this antichrist figure and ultimately with the devil. So here's a, here's a quote from the story, they say, Let's take a really close look at the Monster Energy Drink logo. And if you want to bring up the logo so you can kind of go through this, um, go for it. So they go on. They say, first, there is a gap in the letter M at the top. It's not connected. The M in Monster has a short top and a long tail, just like the letter Vav. And the English here is V-A-V. -V. That's, that's the Hebrew letter. That's how they spell it, Vav. Um, and they say this letter also represents the number six, which means the M in monster is another symbol for 666 that's embedded on every monster can, the number of the beast in the book of Revelation, the last book of the, the Christian New Testament. Now, I found this amusing, um, and, I, and I mentioned this in the article too. As a Christian myself, I read the Bible every day. Um, there's nothing in there. 
like this. There's there's just not. I'm sorry. Um, Mike Adams and his friends are really confused here. And let me give you a couple of a couple of points here. And this is interesting history on on the side. So, um, according to uh, a New Testament scholar named Daniel Wallace, his his specialty is textual criticism or reconstructing the original wording of of the Bible. This is this is what this discipline is about. He points out that the, some of the earliest manuscripts of Revelation that have survived, um, they actually list the number of the beast as 616. <laughs> so, so there is some disagreement among scholars about whether the mark of the or the number of the beast is 616 or 666. So in other words, um, Monster apparently picked a number that's not certain in, in their commitment to worshiping the devil, I guess. <laughs> The other, the other key fact here, and I don't want to get too off in the weeds here, but the, um, the beast in the book of Revelation is, is probably a veiled reference to the Roman emperor Nero, and he died in 68 AD. So he's not around. He's not going to come back and take over the world. That's, that's not the point that's being made in the book of Revelation. Ultimately, he's a representative of the Roman Empire, which, of course, Christians at the time uh, were persecuted by. So they saw this as an evil empire. And this is in part what the book of Revelation uh, is talking about. So in other words, you know, this is this is just standard history. It's You can get it from peer-reviewed sources. It's very mainstream. And uh, no, none of this comes into play for Mike Adams and his friends, right? They just have this theory. They see a weird, what they interpret as a, a reference to the devil on a can of monster energy drink. <laughs> and, and there you go, right? There you go. Monster energy is a satanic play. Now let's get into a little bit of the science. So that the, the idea here, right? Now, why would the devil want you to drink monster energy drinks? Well, they're loaded with sugar and artificial sweeteners and caffeine. And we know these things are bad for you, right? Uh, no, not exactly. So of, of course, everything in moderation, the dose makes the poison, if you will. So if you consume an inordinate amount of sugar, over time, there's a risk of developing type 2 diabetes and heart disease and obesity, all these, these nasty conditions that are not good for you. That's true. Um, but drinking, let's say, one Monster Energy drink a day, it's not going to do anything to your health, especially if you're eating a balanced diet, right? Nothing's going to happen. Same thing with caffeine. It's a mild stimulant. Obviously, people probably have too much of it these days. But again, that's a that's an issue of balance and moderation. There's nothing inherently wrong uh, with the drug itself. And same thing with artificial sweeteners. People have made all sorts of speculation about the diseases these can cause. But the reality is that none of this has been borne out by uh, the evidence. And in fact, when you take people who are overweight and you put them on artificial sweeteners, you replace their sugar intake with artificial sweeteners, they lose weight. Their metabolic health improves. And this has been shown in in uh, quite a few clinical studies that have been done over the years. So all that to say, there's nothing wrong with monster energy drinks. There's no evidence that it's a it's a satanic conspiracy. I just, I never get tired of saying that. <laughs> oh, Mike Adams. I'd love to meet Mike someday and have a discussion and just pick his brain. Just ask him questions and then let him go off on whatever rabbit trail he wanted to go on. Um, but there you have it. So that's just a little sampling of Mike Adams. Again, the article I wrote about him, about this topic, is called Monster Energy's Satanic Plot to Promote Sugar Consumption. <laughs> okay. All right, let's move on to our final story for the day. Um, 
And this is a piece that was written by a colleague of mine named Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein. He's the director of medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. And he's talking about this recent proposal from the Food and Drug Administration to put uh, uh, healthy, in quotes, labels on food. So when you go into the grocery store, the idea is you can pick up certain foods and you can look at it and it'll say healthy. And you go, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll eat this healthy food instead of this, this uh, you know, sugar-laden snack food I was going to have. Um, because I saw this label. Um, there's so many problems here. We've talked a lot about different food labels on this show. This one is bothersome to me for a variety of reasons. But let me go, let me go through a handful of these. The, the first, here's the biggest problem. And this is an acknowledgement from the FDA itself. It's talking about who would use these labels. If we were to implement this labeling scheme, when people go into the grocery store, who would use it? So here's a quote. This is from... Um, the FDA's proposed rule. It's on the FDA's uh, website. So they say, some consumers use nutrient content claims such as healthy to inform their food purchases. We estimate that a small number, 0 to 0.4% of people that try to follow current dietary guidelines of these consumers would use the healthy implied nutrient content claim to make meaningful, long-lasting food purchasing decisions. So right off the bat, this is a major problem is that the intent is to get people to make healthier choices when they're grocery shopping, when they're at, you know, a restaurant. I actually, I don't know if this would apply to food and restaurants. So grocery stores, convenience stores, and so forth. Um, the FDA knows immediately the vast majority of people are not going to use this label. So it doesn't make any sense. That's the first thing to keep in mind. That's from the agency itself. The other problem is one that we've talked about many times on the show, the FDA has expansive regulatory authority over so many issues, um, and they're doing a very poor job on many of them. So we've talked about their animal gene ed editing regulations. They treat gene-edited animals as uh, veterinary drugs, and this makes getting gene-edited animals approved for commercial use absurd, right? It's, it's, it's not impossible, but it's near impossible in many cases because a lot of researchers, a lot of companies, they just don't have... <clears throat> the money to get an edited animal through that review process and onto the market. And uh, that's something we'll revisit in the future, I'm sure. But the point is, is that the FDA does not have to implement these rules. It's very likely that they're doing so because they're trying to avoid lawsuits from activist groups. They don't want to get tied up in court fighting anti-GMO groups who are trying to keep gene edited animals off the market. And another example, and this is more of a direct comparison, is non-GMO food labels. So um, the FDA has come out previously and they've said it's probably not a good idea to, to use non-GMO language on your products for all the reasons we've talked about before. You know, it's there's no way to say that a food is truly non-GMO, even according to, for example, the non-GMO project standard. They even say that foods that contain up to 5% GMO ingredients can still be non-GMO non labeled. So this is this is a problem. The other, the other bigger issue that we've also talked about is that non-GMO labels imply that there's something better about the labeled food compared to the unlabeled food. And again, that's, that's false. In many comparisons, for example, there is no GMO equivalent, right? So for like green beans, for example, or table salt, the, the, a non-GMO label doesn't make sense. But nonetheless, companies slap this label on their products and then they charge a premium to, for them. So that's deeply dishonest. It's it's taking advantage of consumers who don't know uh, some of these basic facts. 
Um, and that, that drives me nuts. Let me get a sip of water here. Okay. But in any event, my point here is that the FDA has a full plate. There's a ton of issues that they have authority over that they could do some good on, right? They could step in and say, you're not allowed to use these non-GMO labels anymore. Uh, let's reform our, our gene-edited animal rules. And the examples go on and on. I'm sure you can think of your own. But basically, my point is, I don't really care what the FDA says about healthy food labels. I'd rather them address these other more important issues instead of, instead of putting sort of a nebulous subjective label um, on these foods. And that leads me to my next point is that it, it's hard to say exactly what healthy is. You know, in a general sense, you can say that, you know, a vegetable, a tomato is healthier than a bag of Skittles, for example. But going back to the point I made about Mike Adams' work a little bit, a little bit ago, a little bit of sugar in your diet is okay, right? Having a little bit of candy or a little bit of soda or whatever is fine. So to say that something is healthy because it has less sugar doesn't really make sense. The other issue is, is that what's healthy for one person may not be healthy for another. And the example that Dr. Dinnerstein gives in the article is, um, according to this healthy label, the FDA says nuts are a healthy snack. But if you have a nut allergy, that's not a healthy snack, obviously. Now, there are other examples too. And I think you can all relate to this, is that um, you know a particular diet might be better for one person than another. And a lot of research has looked at this. When you put people on different diets, they do better than when you put them on another kind of a diet. So, I mean, when you think about this in the context of this conversation about healthy food labels, um, you may be recommending something that's healthy for someone that they should eat, or you may not be. You just don't know because there's just so much diversity in the kind of foods um, that people can consume and can benefit from. Um, I've known, and I'm sure you know people like this too, but I've known people who um, they don't monitor what they eat at all. Um, they eat whatever they want and they don't gain weight for one reason or another, or vice versa. There may be people, you know, that put on weight really, really easily. Um, I've heard Kevin talk on the show and I've said the same thing too, that, um, you know, eating a lot of carbohydrate makes it easier to put on weight for him. Um, and I've had the same experience. So all that to say, there's a lot of variety in the kinds of foods that people can eat and technically have a healthy diet. So really, the FDA is trying to make this population level decision for all of us, and they just don't have the data to do that. There's really no justification um, for that decision. And I think ultimately the, the problem here is that you can't force people to make good decisions. And the way Dr. Dinnerstein puts it is that we have a lack of education in this country when it comes to nutrition and healthy food choices and even cooking. He brings up the example of home economics classes. So back in the day, um, part of graduating high school was taking a home ec class where you would learn the basics of cooking and you would learn how to you know, measure different food ingredients and you would get some basic training in nutrition so you could make these choices. But for, for the most part, those classes are gone. There's still physical education, but there's just less there's less emphasis on treat on educating people in nutrition, um, and so with that in the background, sticking a healthy label on foods in the grocery store it's just not going to do anything. You know, I mean, in in many cases, you're up against the fact that a bag of Doritos tastes better than a handful of almonds, and that's the choice. 
that people are making. And for a lot of them, it, it's, well, I prefer the chips to the almonds. And that's just the way it is. You know, you're not going to fix that by putting a healthy label on it or putting the calorie contents, you know, and this is, this is the typical argument that when someone goes to McDonald's or they go to a fast food place, you can put the calories on the menu, but they're not going there because they're trying to have low calorie food. They're going there because they want a burger and fries. So the reality is it's hard to change people's behaviors unless they want to change them. And in order to change them without their consent, really, you'd have to force them to behave a certain way. You'd have to remove their access to food. You'd have to make it absurdly expensive. And then you'd really have to regulate their diet on, a, on you know, almost like a calorie for calorie basis, which, of course, is not practical today. So anyways, we could keep talking about that for hours on end. But ultimately, the point is, is that the FDA really has no business doing this. There's just there's just no reason. It doesn't make any sense. And by their own admission, it's not going to have any effect. But that's going to do it for us today. Thank you for joining us as always. This has been episode 213. We'll be back next week for 214. And Kevin will be joining us then, I hope. In the meantime, though, you can follow us on social media. Follow Kevin. He's at Kevin Fulta. And I'm back on Twitter after a multiple year hiatus. I am at Cam J English. So follow us. Um, tweet at us. If you have questions, if you want to interact, we love to talk about the show. And we just love to talk about science more generally. So with that, we'll see you next time.